Hello everybody, this is your host of the Patchwork Network, Bennett McKinney. Today we are starting a new mini-series called Rocking the Boat. It's a two-part series and basically I'm just going to be reading from a history paper. So without further ado, here we go. Rocking the Boat. The people all said, sit down, sit down, you're rocking the boat, because the devil will drag you under by the sharp lapels of your checkered coat. Frank Loesser, 1950. The 1950s was a time of peace and conformity for most Americans. This stemmed from the events of the preceding decades, including the Great Depression and World War II. Having seen the atrocities and devastation of these cataclysmic events, many Americans sought to avoid further conflict. They opted instead to work towards peace and chose to conform rather than raise more opposition. Also, the demobilization and suburbanization of America helped push this along. Many sought out the American dream and families expanded in the baby boom. The peace was so prominent that the time period became known as an age of conformity. In a 1950 article for Descent magazine, Irving Howe wrote, To what does one conform? To institutions, obviously, and almost always to small granting necessities of day-to-day survival. In these senses, it may be said that we are all conformist to one degree or another. Howe's stance is mostly true. Americans did choose to conform to society of a peaceful zeitgeist. A, a zeitgeist is the defining spirit or mood of a particular period of history as shown by the ideas and beliefs of the time. And so the 1950s is often categorized as a time period of conformity, but actually it was a time of growing discontent. This unrest bubbled beneath the surface and was shown through the social and political events, media, and popular culture of the time. The social unrest of the time period may have been a result of many factors. But one was the idea that capitalism produced an interest towards social unrest. This idea plays to the intellectuals. It is thought that they would bring down the dynamic structure of capitalism with neurotic aspirations and desires to make society a utopia. These intellectuals experienced a return to prominence in the 1950s. They were honored by the structure of capitalism at the time. This in turn created some resentment from those who were left out. They faced losses and gains, all while participating in the same mass consumerism as the intellectuals. It seemed that unrest came from a thought that it was unfair, but the desires of peace kept those who felt this way in check. Then, at the end of World War II, the process of demobilization began. Men returned from the war and began to displace women who had joined the workforce. The media and mass culture encouraged women to give up their jobs and return to their home life. However, the status quo was not something everyone desired to uphold, and many women did not want to give up their jobs. This return to the workforce created some discontent within women who wanted to keep working. Thus, one-third of the peacetime labor force was women. The time period also saw the rise of suburbanization, the population shift from central urban areas into suburbs resulting in the formation of urban sprawls. Many moved to these sprawls to live the peaceful American dream in neighborhoods where they felt comfortable raising their children. This was a result of the mass production of cars, something that also facilitated the rise of new sexual norms. Young couples could now get away from the watchful eyes of parents and other community members, leading to a rise in premarital sex. This in turn created the baby boom, which was the largest generation of Americans, those born 1946 to 1964. The boom resulted in a demographic that reinforced the idea that women should remain at the home and be wives and mothers. However, 40% of those with young children, and at least half of those with older children, chose to remain in the workforce. These changes in sexual patterns also led to what would be known as the sexual revolution of 1960. A prime example of social dissonance stemming from the discontent that had been bubbling 
underneath the surface during the 1950s. It also led to a rise in liberalism, but not in the same shape as today's liberals. The liberalism of the 1950s was more of a social poncho, something those who had no real political tendencies would take up and wear. It was an escape from the stricter political ideas of the radicalists and conservatives, something slack and easy. Mass media contributed to the rising discontent by reinforcing messages about traditional social roles too. Those were things like consumer culture and the Cold War ideal of domesticity, but many Americans' lives did not always reflect these ideas. Most often misrepresented was the lives of American women, especially those labeled as minorities. It was much more difficult for African-American women to achieve the post-war ideals that were pushed out through the media. In fact, the media often showed popular portrayals of ideal femininity and home life while ignoring the lives of minority women and their families. The 1950s was a whitewash decade, with everything being aimed at middle-class white women. This left those of lower economic standing or different races out of the media, who chose to portray white wives and mothers. Many minorities were facing hardships economically and struggled to provide for their families. The discontent began to build up in the mind of minority groups, especially African Americans who would go on to ignite the civil rights movement in the 1960s. The other area of social discontent came from the education system. Around this time period, many began seeking higher education as it became more available to millions. Howe mentions the fall of Bohemia, the socially unconventional and artistic people, and how it became as expensive to pursue a career in those areas as it was to get a PhD. The intellectuals took over the job scene and what was left of the bohemian world appeared fake and forced. During this time, education was pragmatized. The less practical things were cut out and more stable, prosperous things were emphasized. The 1950s also saw the introduction of sex education. Alfred Kinsey published reports of the sexual behaviors of human beings and challenged many of the previous puritanical ideals. This began to place pressure on the youth of America. They were expected to make good decisions when many just wanted to have fun and not worry about the future. These things began to alienate teens as seen in a section of J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye. But I don't feel like going into that. If you want to know the truth, in the first place that stuff bores me, in the second place my parents would have two hemorrhages apiece if I told anything personal about them. They're nice and all, I'm not saying that, but they're also touchy as hell. This passage is found at the opening of the book. It's the first thing the reader sees. It shows how Holden, the main character, feels about his life. He doesn't care about his upbringing, and he doesn't have a strong connection with his parents. He starts the story just like that, by starting the story where it began, not by telling every detail of his backstory. It was something that resonated with teens that felt that all that mattered was that what family they were from and what kind of upbringing they had. They were alienated, and many teens were eager to get past this, to get a chance to be successful and fulfill their own American dreams. The rising discontent that stemmed from teen alienation added to the slowly boiling pot that would soon bubble over. The feeling was represented through pop culture, movies, literature, and even art. Basically, if it resonated with the people, it was successful. The first big representation was through movies. Americans enjoyed watching flicks on the silver screen through the first half of the 20th century. While most of the films viewed were popular genres, like westerns and romance, the 1950s saw the rise of new, shocking films. In The Wild One, Marlon Brando played a leather-clad leader of a motorcycle gang that racked a small, ransacked a small town. This film horrified adults but fascinated kids and teens who began to emulate Brando's style. Then in 1955, Blackboard Jungle was released. It was a film about teenage juvenile delinquency in an urban high school, something many American parents and teachers feared. The film was the first major movie to use a rock and roll soundtrack. This resulted in it 
being banned in many areas, along with its violent take on high school and its use of multi-racial cast of lead actors. But perhaps the most controversial and influential of all 1950s films was Rebel Without a Cause, another film about teenage delinquency. The film's tagline read, and they both come from good families. However, the film showed how the failure of those good families was to blame for the main character's troubles. And it was not set amid urban decay, rather in an affluent suburb, bringing the light to the idea that juvenile delinquency was no longer a problem solely for the lower class. Instead, it now lurked in those perf supposedly perfect suburbs all over America. Once again, parents were outraged, but the message could no longer be ignored. Having gained the country's attention, Rebel Without a Cause earned three Academy Award nominations and gave James Dean eternal stardom. Thank you for listening to part one of my mini-series, Rocking the Boat. Um, we will continue the second half next time. Uh, I hope you look forward to that because it's got a nice little conclusion there. And uh, thank you for listening. This is your host, Bennett McKinney, signing off. <laughs>